basketball all day. You're like playing Barbies or something. I don't know about you, Will, but someone in here is probably... I pointed at Will saying playing Barbies. I don't know. Maybe you like Barbies. Hey, who am I to judge? I would hovercraft back to my mansion. I would play video games until I got tired of playing video games, which doesn't exist in heaven, and then I'd go back to playing baseball. See, the fact is that I got to do whatever that I wanted to do. Heaven was a place for me to have an endless number of toys for an endless amount of time. And heaven, Jacqueline, would be loads of fun just as long as it wasn't interrupted by too long or too many worship services. This was my idea of heaven. My idea of heaven was, I can't wait to go there. I just hope we don't have church very much. (laughs) And don't lie to me. It's okay just because I'm your pastor. Don't lie to me. I know you're thinking the same thing, man. Heaven's going to be great. I just hope there's no preaching there. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. The idea of heaven. Well, from the time that the Bible was written, there was an idea of heaven. And when it was first written, the idea of heaven was this is where God dwells. And from this place of heaven, wherever God dwells, is where the world comes from. It's where the cosmos is spoken into or to order. See, the thing about heaven, though, was that even from an early thought, heaven was so distant from us that it was hard for us to ever have any type of relationship with heaven. And in modern day, uh, we... in our lifetime, heaven has been taught and thought about as if it's a destination for your soul's final resting place. And so when we do talk about heaven, we talk about being right with God or right with your faith before you end up in heaven or in hell. That heaven is this distant reality. It's not for today. It's for tomorrow or for the end of your life, and you better be saved, at least in our tradition, this is kind of how we're familiar about talking about it. You better be saved, because if you're not saved, what happens for a soul that is not saved? You don't go to heaven, you go... I'm looking for an answer, okay, yeah. (laughs) So some people have even talked about this way, this kind of soul salvation, this... Uh, this transcendence of heaven, this faraway place that is God's home, of course, and you might one day be able to join God in God's home too if you're saved. They've talked about this in a slang way as referring to it as fire insurance. As heaven not really having any type of relationship with earth, heaven really meaning just you know, insurance that you don't burn for the rest of eternity, that you go to heaven. And see, when heaven is so distant from things that actually matter, then we begin to imagine of heaven being about things that don't really matter here on earth, like playing baseball for 24 hours a day, every day, or playing video games. We think about things that don't give us anxiety about when they, heaven might be, (laughs) not sitting in church. But the idea that heaven is the Father's home, isn't really too distant from Scripture. The question, though, is what does the Father's home in heaven have to do with earth? What in the world does heaven have to do with earth? You see, the heavenly home and the heavenly realm being a place where God dwells like a house, it's present in John chapter 14. You see, we hear Jesus say there, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. You see, there is more than enough room in my Father's home. See, even Jesus begins to understand heaven as this whatever, wherever it may be, wherever it may be, that it's 
that it's like a house. It's described in familial terms. And again, in chapter 6, in the 6th chapter of Matthew, what we've been reading this morning, heaven is dressed in familial context, describing God as the heavenly Father. Now, and, and, and then the Sermon on the Mount is in chapter 6. Not Sermon on the Mount, it is. The Lord's Prayer is in chapter 6. How is, Father, how is the Father addressed in the, in, the, uh, in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who, yeah, who dwells in heaven. Hmm. And then his heavenly home described as this inclusive, belonging, familial place. Which is nice. I just wonder what it has to do with heaven or what it has to do with earth. We see further in, in Matthew 6, if you have your Bibles, I would direct, I would direct you to three scriptures in, in the 6th chapter. Verse 4, verse 6, and verse 18. Listen to this. See if you catch a pattern. In verse 4, Jesus says, Give your gifts in private, and your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. Now listen, in, in, in verse 6, but when you, if you have your Bibles, go to verse 6. Look at it. But when you pray... Go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. Then your father who sees everything will reward you. In verse 18, then no one will notice that you are fasting except your father who knows what you do in private. And your father who sees everything will reward you. How is God addressed in each one of these passages? As father. And where does the father sit? Uh, up in where? It rhymes with seven. Heaven. heaven. It's interesting that heaven is a place where God dwells and God is addressed as our Father. And wherever our Father is, there also is His children. Heaven being like this familial place. And then again, one more time, in verses 7 and in verse 32, not only does God see everything from the heavenly realm, not only is God your Father who sees everything from heaven, God, our Heavenly Father, also knows exactly what you need. Don't be like the Gentiles, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask Him, verse 8. And in verse 32, we just read it. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your Heavenly Father, these things being anxiety. Anxiety dominates the thoughts of unbelievers, but your Heavenly Father already knows all of your needs. Hmm. Up in heaven, in His gold hovercraft, God is our Father, and He sees everything, and He knows all of our needs. Wherever heaven may be, it's a home with a Father who cares and who must be full of love. We see in this chapter that God loves His children. Now, I think that this is important for our culture. He sees us. He sees you, not like Santa Claus, a little bit different than that. He sees you, and he knows your needs. So let's just put that on pause for a second, James, and let me ask you, James, what did you do for Thanksgiving? Me? Yeah. Um, I, uh, I got to hang out and eat with my family. Ah, uh, and was it good? It was awesome, awesome. Jody, what did you do for Thanksgiving? Uh, you did. And me, I gathered in a small home in Overland Park, a home that has since uh, the family has outgrown this tiny little uh, split-level home built in 1964. 
where on Thursday we gathered crammed tight. I don't know, Ron, if your family is beginning to get like this. If the home you gather in, I know you have a big family. If the home you gather in is beginning to be too small for the size of the family. But yet there's something about that home that you gather in that you can't do away with. And there's something about Aunt Marilyn's that's sacred about Aunt Marilyn's. And though we have about 35 people that gather in a 1,500 square foot home, we just cannot do away with Aunt Marilyn's house. We love it. This room is bigger than Aunt Marilyn's house, and we had about as many people, or though it felt, in Aunt Marilyn's home. And you know where we huddled together on Thursday? It wasn't around the TV. Well, there was a TV there, but that's subsequent. It was the cream cheese dip that was most, most important. <laughs> we huddled. TV was just inconsequential. The cream cheese dip, though, let me tell you about this. It had jalapenos on it. Kevin, I don't know if you like cream cheese dip with jalapenos on it, but someone that I know that may be preaching to you uh, ate about half a block of cream cheese on Thursday. <laughs> Guilty. McGlutton, there's something that Scripture says about that, but that's for next week. That's not for this week, okay? It's <laughs> where were we gathered? We were gathered around the small table in Aunt Marilyn's crowded home where there was food. And it's not a Nazarene family, so just keep that in mind. As I tell you that Uncle Dan was there, and as he uh, prepared the turkey, he drank wine and sang songs about Drake. And he was so happy. He was full of joy. As we gathered all of us, 30 of us around this table, eating cream cheese dip and crackers and eating turkey and pecan pie. And Dan drank his soul happy, singing songs of Drake and making turkey. We were for a moment, complete and happy and full, both figuratively and literally. You can say that in that moment we rejoiced. Now, and I confess to you, not everyone here has such a happy picture of their family around Thanksgiving, but I would say many of us do. And if you don't, if you're one, that this Thanksgiving or all of your Thanksgivings are not all that happy, hang on, there's a word for you today. There's good news. Just hang on for a moment. Maybe at one point, because the table I gathered at in the small home that we became too crowded for is not really my home. It's not really my family. It's my wife's family. None of these people are blood. I'm a stranger. I'm an outsider. I don't know if you ever feel like you are an outsider or a stranger to, to a family, but I certainly did. And at one point, I certainly did at one point in my life. And at one point, maybe, Carrie, I wondered what my role was in this new family, what my voice was. If anyone would like me, if anyone would see me, if anyone would notice me, would this family accept me? Would they love me? Would they, you know, would they care for the fact that as they drink wine and sing songs about Drake, I drink Pepsi and sing Southern Gospel? Would they, I don't know if that ever happens, would they (laughs) still like me? Would they still accept me? But now, in my 10th year around Aunt Marilyn's table, I'm no longer wondering what my role is. I'm no longer wondering if I have a voice. In fact, you know, Amanda, I don't even think that I care if I have a voice or not. Certainly when I got there at 11.33 on Thursday, I didn't really care about much as I went first for the cream cheese dip and stayed there for about an hour. (laughs) I didn't really care. I'm at peace within the family, enjoying fellowship with one another. Receiving and giving life around Aunt Marilyn's table, I am known and I am seen. I did not worry about my needs. In fact, Miriam, here's what's crazy. I'm not sure that I'm in need of a single thing when I'm around Aunt Marilyn's table. 
I can't remember wondering or even being anxious, Elizabeth, about a single thing around Aunt Marilyn's table. The cream cheese dip was there. And Dan, like two feet away from me, was getting drunk singing songs about Drake. I wasn't worried about a single thing. The family, even Uncle Dan, Cousin Dan, even Dan, the family was enough. It was enough. You ever feel this way? You ever feel at peace with your family? Now, I know that there's some people sitting, maybe getting awkward, Darren. There may be some people here that aren't at peace with the person sitting next to them. Hang on, there's good news. Good news. I think what we're going to find here is that heaven may be like this family table. But even if heaven is like this family table, what does heaven have to do with earth? What does a gold-plated family table with gold hovercrafts playing baseball all day have to do with earth today? That's what we'll do when we die. But what does heaven have to do with earth? Like, what does Thanksgiving have to do with the rest of the 355 days of our year? How does Thanksgiving have any sort of impact or effect on what we do with the rest of our life? It's just one day, right? I find it interesting that of all the anxieties first century Palestinians may have faced, that Jesus interrupts a beautiful discourse on the heavenly table and the heavenly father with talk about money. Right in the midst of all this, I showed you all those verses in chapter 6, right in the middle of all these things about the heavenly father and what he's like in heaven itself, Jesus then wants to talk about money. What does money have to do with heaven? It's interesting to me that right in the middle of this discourse, Jesus brings to the table the height of anxiety. So if Jesus is all of a sudden talking about the Heavenly Father and the Heavenly Table, he brings to the table right next to the cream cheese dip the height of anxiety, a talk about daily provisions and the insatiable desires to want. I don't know if we got this quote, but there is a quote in the beginning of the book called Moneyball that's actually quoting John Ruskin in his book, Unto This Last. If we have it, I'd like you to take a look at it. If not, I'll just read it to you. It's the opening quote of the book Moneyball. Maybe you saw the movie with Brad Pitt. Here's the quote. Lately, in a wreck of a Californian ship, one of the passengers fastened a belt about him with 200 pounds of gold in it, with which he was found afterwards at the bottom. Now, as he was sinking, had he the gold or the gold him? Let me read this one more time. Lately in a wreck of a California ship, one of the passengers fastened a belt about him with 200 pounds of gold in it. You get it? There's 200 pounds of gold. There's a passenger sinking. He takes the gold. He wraps his belt around him. He fastens himself to the belt. Of, of, he fastens himself to the gold as he sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Now, as he was sinking, had he the gold? Or did the gold have him? This is a great question for Americans. Money seems to be causing all sorts of anxiety. Now see, in our wealth, we're the wealthiest country in the world. Do we have the money? Or does the money have us? I'm reading a book. I've read a book called The Unbanking of America. It's very interesting. It makes a connection that's interesting to me that the rise of corporate banks is simultaneous with the breakdown of the neighborhood relationship between bank and neighbor. 
What is happening is corporate banks rise in their influence, neighborhoods are breaking down. And it's leading to a distrust of the institution. In fact, if you're a millennial born sometime around 1980 to the present day, you probably have a deep distrust for the bank, or you're asking yourself right now, what is the purpose of the bank, or how do you write a check? What's interesting to me is that a lack of being known, of being seen by a teller, by someone at a bank that knows your history, that knows where you live, that knows who you are, that can hear you, that can see you, that can have presence with you. That a lack of this has led to a distrust of what the corporate institution is doing with our money to the point that we may not even trust them at all. We may refer to them as the man. Not knowing our place or simply not being known, seen, or heard is leading to a rise of anxiety. Does anybody know me? Does anybody see me? If I scream, will anyone care? Jesus could have picked a number of anxieties or worries to discuss on the Sermon on the Mount. But he picked money, I believe, because it lies at the root of our competing allegiance. What does money promise? It promises provision. But what does God's covenant promise? Provision. I will be your God and you will be my people. If you're like me, you're remembering that verse in Joshua you learned in Sunday school. Choose this day whom you will serve. I don't feel that I have you, but I feel that what I'm saying is important. So I do want to just tell you. It's interesting to me That money promises exactly what God promises. So who are you going to trust more? Perhaps what is needed most is a shift in the way we think about the interaction of heaven and earth. About God's homes and ideals. In our home and way of being. In fact, I bet, just just as I was saying that, that money promises exactly what God promises, who you're going to trust more. I bet some of you were saying, yeah, but God doesn't really... What were you thinking? Yeah, but God's not going to go to work for me tomorrow. <laughs> God's not going to supply my bank, supply me with more money tomorrow. God's nice and all, and it'll be nice to have a gold hovercraft when I die. But what in the world is God in God's home of heaven, in God's heavenly table? What in the world does that have to do with the fact that I'm anxious about what I'm going to wear, about what I'm going to eat, and about what job I'm going to have? And if I can afford the things that I want. Perhaps God is not distant. And heaven is not just for the afterlife. Perhaps if we really dive into scripture, we'll find that in Jesus, God's home moves to earth. That God is loving in Jesus and near in Jesus and present in Jesus. That heaven actually is the invitation to seat to sit at the seat of God's family table and be consumed by the identity that you are indeed a child of God right next to crazy cousin Dan because of the work of the Son to reconcile us to the Father. Now, now, now it's like God is the one that jovially stands beside the turkey in the kitchen of a tiny home 
listening to Drake. Only in John chapter 2, but blessing the wine. The structure now comes to mean very little of a tiny home. We're all gathered around the jovial father. Before we seek to satisfy our human desire to be seen or to be known, have we thought to find our place at the father's heavenly table? A heaven that breaks in with Jesus and invites us to sit with our own father who owns it all, winding back into the small kitchen where the fathers hovered over the turkey. And we know now that even it's a small house, it's not the house that we thought, but even he owns the house. It's open for us. And the father, he owns the food. It's plentiful for us. He has a yard, and it's enough for us. Have we found ourselves around our father and learned to receive our role as child? Maybe this is only good to me, and I accept that. Before we seek out to settle our own anxiety, have we rejoiced in the love of the Father? Can you imagine? Is it possible for us to imagine that God wants us to live every day as if it was Thanksgiving Day? I think He loves us that much. He cares for us that much. If he cares that much about the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, can you imagine how much he cares about you and the money or the lack of money in your wallet? Friend, he doesn't want you wrapped in your anxiety. He desires you to be wrapped up in his kingdom. Where your heart is, there also is your treasure. So where is your heart? I like this quote about, from a commentary. The goal of God's redemptive plan in Jesus is not the removal of the earth in the sense of being replaced with the kingdom of heaven, but it is instead the renewal of all things. So the earthly realms will resemble the heavenly pattern. So what would need to be rearranged in your life for your daily life to resemble the heavenly pattern of the kingdom of God? For earth to look like heaven. For earth to look like a daily connection with our Father and His home. Jesus wants more to be a character that lived 2,000 years ago. Jesus wants to be king of our hearts. But are we missing the invitation because our minds are fixed on fulfilling the desires of our flesh and satisfying the worries of our day? When we're worried about what should be ours, We cannot see that God has already promised to provide everything we need. (laughs) I don't know if you discovered this yet, but the promise of money is empty. The promise of God is forever and eternal. You will not die in hunger. This is what God promises us now. You will not die in hunger. I don't know if you're anxious about where food's going to come from, but you will not die in hunger. You will not die in want. I don't know what you crave. I don't know what you saw on Black Friday that you can't live without. And that may be true. You may really have needed that. But whatever. If you die before the next Black Friday, you're not going to die in want. You will not die in insignificance. Friends, don't you know the promises of our good Heavenly Father? You will not die. I believe 
that, Nate, this may be the central anchor of the gospel. Who is Lord of your heart? And have you accepted the fact that heaven has come to earth and that the table is before us now, inviting each one of us to participate as children of God in the promises of God who will provide everything you need. He sees you. He sees your need. And he will bless you with the desires of your heart. Now, can you imagine? A heavenly father who is at home on Thanksgiving Day. (laughs) Door wide open, waiting to receive his family. This is the invitation that we have to store our treasures, our identity at this table to fix our eyes upon this home.